0: I had a thought on one of the songs we sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I think that we, we need to do more surveying of the wondrous cross. <laughs> you know? It does say when I do that. So here's a question. How often do you survey the wondrous cross? I think we all need to do that more. Not that it changes anything, right? Because it's, it's an objective historical fact that's done. God has loved us and given himself for us. And whether we survey it or not doesn't change that, but it does change our perspective when we do survey that. So that was my thought. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read from 5 to 10. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order, And the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, and abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Let's just pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that this morning you would speak to us and fill us all with your Holy Spirit that we can hear and receive from you. And I pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this last week on campus, we have had a huge campus-wide game going on on campus. So those of you who have been on campus probably know. There's a game that about 800 students were involved in on campus. It was called Humans vs. Zombies. And uh, I think at least 800 students, there's probably more as the game went on, but basically how it it went was this. You'd have 800 students, and they're all humans. And there was one zombie. And if the zombie tags you, then you become a zombie, and now there's two. And it just exponentially grows throughout the week. It's a week-long game, and if you can last throughout the whole week, and remain a human, by the end of the week, then you win, essentially. And the humans have Nerf guns. I guess they bought all the Nerf gun items out of, like, Walmart and Toys R Us and stuff. They bought the whole thing out. But um, that's how the game went. And I was actually preaching on zombies that week, just to be relevant. Do you know what the zombie chapter is in the Bible? Ephesians chapter 2. That's where it says that before we become Christians, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. Right? We're living dead. <laughs> so I was preaching about that. Um, now, in this game, humans and zombies, throughout the week, sometimes they had, to, they had to accomplish an objective, the humans. And on one day, I was told that they had to hold this particular location for a certain amount of time. So you had all these humans there with their Nerf guns. And I guess if you shoot a zombie, you're safe. The zombie's dead. But they had all these humans there, and all the zombies were trying to charge them and tag them, and they were holding that line, defending that location, and shooting their Nerf guns. So <laughs> sounds like a lot of fun. Now, why am I saying this? <laughs> because in Colossae, in our, in our text this morning, we have a very similar thing. We have, you could say, Colossians versus Judaizers, <laughs> and not humans versus zombies. And the Judaizers were in Colossae. They would go basically wherever the gospel was preached, and they would spread their false doctrines and preach uh, pseudo-Christian gospels. So they weren't outright denying Jesus, but they were coming along and saying, oh yeah, we're Christians too, we believe in Jesus, but here is uh, really what the truth is about Jesus. It's not enough. Here was the message of the Judaizers. It's not enough to simply believe in Jesus. That's not going to save you. You need to also keep the law. And so, unlike the humans versus zombies game, which is just a game, this is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. The Apostle Paul says, if you believe the message of these guys, then Christ profits you nothing. Now, how many of you want Christ to profit you nothing? No, right? Well, this is what is at stake. These Judaizers are coming. They're sent by the devil. They're his ministers. And... They're preaching a righteousness that's not by faith. And Paul says, if you go there that way, Christ will profit you nothing. So everything is at stake here. And that is what the conflict is all about. Last week, we spoke about, we, we read about the great conflict. you remember that? That there's this massive conflict in heaven and on earth over the gospel and over your soul. Don't think that, that these things that we talk about at church are just casual. The devil wants you to go to hell. And God wants you to be saved. God wants you to come under the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and it's life and it's death. So last week, we looked at the great conflict. This week, we're going to look at the very first command in the letter to the Colossians. So, so far, we actually haven't read any commands. Did you notice? Now, that doesn't mean we didn't have things that we could learn from and apply and do, but basically, we've, we've had you know, prayers of Paul. Paul's opened his heart to us. We've seen his desires. But no explicit commands. This week we're going to see the very first command in the the letter to the Colossians. So I call this message Marching Orders because we're in this conflict. And Paul, seeing the situation with the Judaizers, he says, here is what I command you to do. Here's the first thing. This is what you need to do. These are your marching orders. So there's three things we're going to look at this morning. Number one, the orders that were given. Number two, the obstacle that we have to carrying out those orders. And number three, how to overcome that obstacle so that we can carry out the order. That's what we're going to look at. So first of all, the order that we're given. Verse five, let's look at it together. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit. So Paul, where is Paul at this point? He's absent, he's not at Colossae, right? Where is he, Wallace? Wallace? Well, he's with them in the Spirit. Where is he physically? Remember, he's a prisoner in Rome, a prisoner in Rome, which is about one thousand miles away from Colossae. He had never seen them before at all. He'd never been to Colossae. He didn't share the gospel with the Colossians, and now he's in Rome. Now, why does he have an interest in in Colossae anyway? If he's never been there before, he's a thousand miles away. He's never seen them before in the face, face to face. Why is he writing to them? Why does he have an interest in this? Well, Epaphras knew Paul, and Epaphras brought to the Colossians the gospel that Paul preached. And so in a sense, Paul was like their spiritual grandfather, in a sense. He didn't, they didn't get the gospel from him directly, but indirectly. Just like you weren't born directly from your grandparents, but indirectly, right? And so he is writing to them sort of in a grandfatherly way with the affection of a grandfather and the authority of a grandfather as well. And he's writing. So he has this interest in them. He's saying, even though I'm far away, even though I've never seen you before, I'm writing to you, and I'm with you in spirit. Now, what does that mean to be with someone in spirit? That's a question. We have two ways we can interpret that. We can interpret spirit in a hard way or in a soft way or in a specific way. We can interpret it to mean in the Holy Spirit. I'm with you in the Holy Spirit. Or, I'm with you just in spirit. In my own spirit, I'm with you. What's the difference? Well, if if we take it to mean I'm with you in the Spirit, capital S, with the Holy Spirit, then that might mean something like we see in the Old Testament. Do you remember when Elisha told Naaman to go and bathe in the Jordan River? Do you remember that? He says, this guy came from Syria. He was all leprous. And he came to the prophet in Israel and... Elisha told him to go bathe in this dirty river and kind of spooked him out a bit. But he finally did it. He got actually cleansed from his leprosy, came back, he said, okay, hey, what can I pay you? And Elisha says, you don't need to pay me anything. See you later, right? And Naaman's like, come on, I want to pay you something. No, it's okay, take off. And he's like, fine. But the servant of Elisha is like, what do you mean we could make some money off of this, you know? And so the servant goes after Naaman on the road secretly. And the servant says, oh, Elisha actually changed his mind and wants you to give us some money, so can you give it to me? He gives it to him. When he comes back, the servant comes back. He had hidden the stuff. Elisha says, didn't my heart go with you when you went to talk to Naaman? Or my spirit, wasn't it with you? Basically, Paul says here, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, not, I'm absent from you in the flesh, but I'm with you in the spirit beholding you. So Paul's like, I'm watching you, right? Right? Is that what he means? Elisha's like, I'm watching you. So can Paul in the Holy Spirit actually see them in a supernatural way? Like Ezekiel, who saw the elders of Israel doing idolatry, even though he wasn't there, he was in the Spirit. I don't think that's what this means. Because we don't get that picture of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts and in his letters. Actually, Paul's often sending people to a church to find out how they're doing, right? and hearing reports, etc. So I don't think we can take this in the Holy Spirit supernatural sense, but in the sense that we might even use it when we say, I'm with you, I'm with you, Wallace. You know, Even though I'm not going to be there, I'm with you, you know, in spirit. Paul's saying, I'm with you in affection and authority. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, When you gather together with my spirit in the name of Jesus, this is what I want you to do. So it's like we've come together. We know what Paul's orders are. Even though he's not here, it's like he's here. We all know what he would say if he was here. So we're going to behave as if he was here kind of thing. I like Brad right now. Brad is not with us in flesh, but we do know what Brad would say if he was here. So he's kind of with us in spirit, right? And he could write a letter and say, I'm not with you, but you know I'm with you. What does Paul see? Here's an important point. Paul's not there, but he knows something. We learn something about the condition of the Colossian church here. He's rejoicing over it. Did you know? The Apostle Paul rejoiced over the Colossian church when he saw their order and the steadfastness of their faith in Christ. So here we learn something, that though there's a crisis at Colossae, And though the Judaizers are there there, trying to influence them away from the gospel, the Colossians had not yet moved away from the hope of the gospel. The Colossians were still believing the truth. They were still standing strong in the gospel. And this is the difference between Colossians and Galatians. How does Galatians start? After Paul gives this basic introduction, he says, I marvel that you're so soon moved away from the hope of the gospel, the grace of Christ. Right? And the whole thing is a rebuke. The whole letter is a rebuke. You don't get that sense in Colossians. You get a warning in Colossians. In Galatians, they had moved away from the hope of the gospel, and he was, he was rebuking them for that. But look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. They hadn't moved away. He says, If you continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So here we learn the difference between Galatians and Colossians. There was a crisis, but they were still holding the line. You ever seen a movie before, like a military movie, like a Civil War movie, let's say? The American Civil War. And you've got a, a line of soldiers, and they're in a conflict. There's actually a conflict going on, but they're still st- standing strong. And there's some captain yelling at them, hold the line, hold the line, you know? He's not rebuking them because the line's broken. He's warning them and exhorting them to hold the line because of the danger that they're in. And This is the sense that we have here in Colo- in the Colossians letter in the Colossian church they haven't yet broken the lines and actually this sense of holding the line in a military sense is, is is a perfect analogy because these two words in verse 5 order and steadfastness in the King James are actually military terms in the Greek it actually is the term of an of an army set in order and an army that's holding strong so it's that very sense He's basically, Paul saying, I'm rejoicing to see that you're holding the line. You're in order, and you're standing strong. Lightfoot, a commentator, J.B. Lightfoot, he said, he translated steadfastness as a strong front. You still have a strong front in this conflict with the Judaizers. It's interesting to notice Paul's military analogies. Have you ever noticed his military analogies in Scripture? There's, there's a slight amount of military analogies in his early letters, and there's an explosion of military analogies in his later letters. Did you ever notice that? In his early letters, he almost never mentions military analogies. But once he became a prisoner in Rome, then he started using military analogies all the time. Did You, you ever notice that? Because he has, a lot of the letters are prison letters, actually. So Ephesians chapter 6, put on the full armor of God. Helmet, shield, and he goes into detail about that all, that you might stand in the evil day. Philippians chapter 1, he talks about the, the Christians being like a phalanx, holding together, fighting together in the faith of the gospel. Here in Colossians, 2 Timothy, he talks about being a soldier of Jesus Christ, and no soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. He talks about fighting the good fight of faith. Those are all letters written when he was in prison. And there's probably two reasons for that. Because of one, being in Rome, he would have been immersed in a military environment, right? Being in a Roman environment would have been an immersion in a military environment. So he would have seen all these things and probably gathered lots of analogies. But I think more than that, because Paul wasn't traveling anymore, whereas before his, he had so much of a focus on spreading the gospel and preaching the gospel, that sort of came to a minimum and he had so much more time to focus on the pastoral care of the church and because he wasn't available to travel he probably felt you know worried and wanting to get out there and help the churches and he was knew the judaizers were out there and he wasn't out there able to do anything about it so in his mind in his attention turned from spreading the gospel and attacking to encouraging and exhorting the churches to stand strong in the gospel that they've already heard. You can just imagine Paul like a general in prison sending out his orders, and this is the orders for your church. This is the, don't let the Judaizers come, you know. Don't let the Judaizers get a foothold in your church. Verse 6 and 7, here's the order. What do you think the first order would be? If you were a general like Paul in God's army, And you were aware that a church was in danger, they were being attacked by Judaizers. What order would you give? And remember, you're writing a letter, and it takes a long time for letters to get around in those ancient days. So you have to write an order, and it has to be a wise order, and it has to be a sufficient order, right? It has to be enough. This order has to be enough. What would you write? Here's what Paul writes. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. That's our marching orders. What an order, huh? That's a wise and sufficient order. If he's going to write one thing, he'd send that off. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him and abound therein with thanksgiving. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? As you have been taught, he says. So he's referring to Epaphras now. He's saying, when Epaphras brought you the gospel, how did he bring it and how did you receive it? Very simple. He shared with you the truth, and you believed it, right? How did you receive it? By simple faith. You didn't have to jump through any hula hoops. You didn't have to keep any commandments. You simply believed the message of the cross, the message of the gospel. That was all you did. Paul's saying you never graduate from this. Just as you became a Christian, that is exactly how you're to live the entire rest of your life in simple faith in Jesus Christ. Do you remember the love that you had at first? Do you remember the joy that you had at first? Do you remember the peace that you had at first? Do you want that love right now? Do you want that peace right now? Do you want that joy right now? Guess what you gotta do? Nothing except what you did at first. Simply believe the message. Like we said earlier, simply surveying the wondrous cross again and again and again and again. Every day, Reminding yourself of what the gospel is. Reminding your brothers and sisters of what the gospel is. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And that's how you run. That's how you walk. It's interesting because when we think of walking and running, what do you think of usually? Do you think of doing nothing except believing? And there's a lot of preaching about this, isn't there? How to run the race of the Christian life. How to walk the walk of the Christian life. And there's all these teachings on it. But from what I see in the Bible, walking and running well is believing. This is what he says to the Galatians. You did run well. Who did hinder you from obeying the truth? They were believing the gospel for, and hoping in the righteousness of faith, not being moved away from it, and then they moved away from it. and They started doing works for their salvation. He says, you were running well. Why did you stop? So you've got to get it into your mind that when the Bible tells us to walk and to run, many times it's often speaking of simply holding true and fast to the faith of Jesus Christ. Fighting the good fight of faith. That's active. You're fighting a fight. You're engaged in a wrestling match. Ephesians chapter 6, stand in the evil day. It sounds like you're doing all these things, and all you're doing is believing. Believing. When the devil is trying to take you off of that simple faith in Jesus, so we're tempted to think it's more complicated than that. There was a a pastor who was writing a letter to a pastor, and uh, an older pastor to a younger pastor, and the younger pastor was saying, "Look, the gospel is just—it's not working. I mean, I'm preaching the gospel every day to my every week to my congregants, and there's just such a mess in the church. And the gospel is not working. I need to go preach something else. I need to preach laws. I need to preach." Something besides the gospel, because it's not working. And the old pastor writes and he says, It's not the gospel that's the problem, you're just not preaching the gospel well enough. That's what he said. You need to preach the gospel better. He had confidence that the gospel would be sufficient for that the health of that church. Do we think it's more complicated than that? One commandment in the face of crisis. As you have therefore, this is for you now. You who have received Christ Jesus, if you are a Christian, as you have become a Christian, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Continue in the faith. Verse 7 rooted and built up in Him. Now, He tells you a bit more about this walk rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So this is how we become experts at this. Okay, Rooted means to be stabilized. It's the Greek word. So it means you get stabilized, meaning you're no longer blown about by all these ideas that the Judaizers have. You are stabilized and rooted in the gospel. A tree that is rooted is hard to push over, isn't it? But a little tree that's not, you can just pull it up. how many have you ever done weeds weeding these some weeding sometimes around the house it's easy to pull the ones that aren't very rooted right but the ones that have those big fat roots in them that's a lot harder to pull out of the ground isn't it right and sometimes you can't pull it out sometimes you're pulling and it just doesn't break it does this is the idea Rooted in what? Rooted in the gospel. Rooted in the truth as it is in Jesus. Rooted in faith. Established in the faith. Stabilized. Do you feel that you are, are stabilized in the gospel? And sometimes when we're not in crisis, we can think we are. Crisis comes and then we realize, oh, I've got a lot more rooting to do in the gospel. So stabilizing yourself, becoming knowledgeable in the gospel so as not to be moved. We've seen this before. Like a baby walking. Josiah, you know? I'm sure he wasn't always running around like this. And he had to stabilize, because he probably tried to walk at first, and he was like, whoa, and he fell, right? But a baby has to grow and become strong in his bones and stabilize so that he can walk. How does one grow? First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, by desiring the pure milk of the word of God. You grow and you stabilize. But you don't only stabilize. The point of a baby walking isn't just so that it can walk. It continues to grow and become a competent member of society, right? One day Josiah will be big and he'll be talking and he'll be a competent member of society. And that's what God wants for the Christian as well. Not just to be a baby who needs to be taken care of and blown around, but that is strong, that can walk, And that grows to be a competent member of the body of Christ that can function and bless and minister to the needs of people. Because once you're strong in the gospel, boy, you can then go to people that are weak and you can help them and support them. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to help someone see Jesus and what the gospel is. The Apostle Paul was so stabilized in the gospel that he was helping these churches. Uh, repel the threat of the Judaizing preachers. And lastly, in this order, abounding therein with thanksgiving. This is the key to the whole order. In fact, I think this is the main part of the order. So he sends this one order from Rome a thousand miles away to Colossae and he basically says, you know, hold true to the gospel and abound therein with thanksgiving. That's the means to growing, and that's the end of growing all rolled into one, I believe. As we are thankful, we are stabilized, and as we are stabilized, we are thankful. It's just like this circle. It's the means and the end all rolled into one. Thankfulness grounds us and establishes us, and it also makes us more thankful as we continue to go on. And this isn't a casual thankfulness, by the way. This isn't just when you feel like it. give thanks. This is abounding in the Greek parisio, which means super abounding, which means you have an excess of thankfulness. Excessively thankful, that's the idea. You're overflowing. Your cup isn't just full. Your cup is running over. You're so thankful, you just don't know what to do with all this thankfulness. Does that mark us as a church? Does that mark you as a Christian? Excessive thankfulness in the gospel. If not, what do you think the problem is? The gospel or our vision of the gospel? The cross or our surveying of the cross? It's a call. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to believe, continue to see, continue to survey, continue to walk, and abound therein with thanksgiving. Do you know you can't be thankful unless it is indeed salvation by grace you can't be thankful for something that you don't have so you can only be thankful if you actually have something from god whenever the bible talks about thankfulness it's just presupposing that you have actually got something from god why do we thank god for a beautiful day you ever thank god for a beautiful day thank you god for this beautiful day why because there's a beautiful day and it's here and you didn't do anything to get it it's a gift right You wouldn't be thankful for a beautiful day if he didn't give you a beautiful day. But when you have one, you're thankful then. Now, if a beautiful day was dependent upon your righteousness, you wouldn't be that thankful. You'd just be like thankful to yourself for being righteous so that the beautiful day came. right? But because we get these beautiful days and we don't have to do anything to get them, we are then thankful to God. But did you know that if salvation depended upon our righteousness, we could never be thankful? because we would never be saved. And we could say, well, God, thanks for dying on the cross for me, but I'm not really thankful because it doesn't matter that you died on the cross for me. If I don't keep the commandments, I don't get it. And so I'm not really that thankful because it really depends on me, and I don't have it yet. Only when we receive the gospel, when we receive salvation, forgiveness, are you thankful for your forgiveness? Are you thankful for being saved? It's because you have been saved. And you have been forgiven. And this is a theme all throughout Colossians. Just a quick survey here. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. You'll notice this to be a major theme in Colossians, this idea of thanksgiving. Colossians 1, verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has done it. And has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. You have it so you can be thankful for it. It's not thanks for the chance, God, but it's really not exciting to me, because if I don't do it, I don't get it, and if I do do it, I get it and I should thank myself. You see, You have these things, and you have them as a gift. Thank you, God. Then 2.7, as we just read, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Look at 3.15 and 17, Colossians chapter 3.15 and 17. Notice how often thankfulness comes up here. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, or singing with gratitude. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that you do, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Excessive thankfulness. Then, chapter 4, verse 2, Paul again tells us to be thankful. Continue in prayer, watching the same with thanksgiving. It's like a little redundant. Thank, Nathaniel, you should be thankful to God. Thank God, Nathaniel. Abound with thanksgiving. Because the moment we stop being thankful, the doors open for us to start looking to other places. Do you see that? The moment you stop being thankful, then the Judaizer's message starts appealing to you. If God's part is Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and everything that Christ is to us, our part is thankfulness to God and to Christ for what he has given to us. So this is the Apostles' order, brothers and sisters, thankfulness. So if you aren't thankful, then you need to survey the wondrous cross more often. Number two, the obstacle to this. There is an obstacle to this. Remember, there's an adversary who doesn't want us to thank God. If thankfulness is our protection against the Judaizing preachers, then before Satan sends the Judaizing preachers, he stops making us thankful. He removes the protection, and then he sends in the army. He's not a dummy. Verse 8 is our obstacle. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So our obstacle is this. Men who want to bring you into bondage by their ideas that are not based upon Christ but upon the wisdom of the world. Beware. Beware of dog. How many have ever seen a bear? Jonathan, you ever seen a beware of dog sign before? What does that make you do? (laughs) It makes you beware, right? (laughs) I won't go on that property. (laughs) Right? Beware of men. Beware of of their ideas that are not based upon Christ, but are based upon the wisdom of the world and the traditions of men. This word spoil means to carry you away captive by seduction. To carry you away captive by seduction. So it's like a kidnapper who might lure you away from safety and then take you captive and get you out of there. That's the sense of the Greek word, to be kidnapped Beware lest they kidnap you, luring you away and taking you captive. Or an army, suppose there's two armies and the other army gets an interesting strategy and they have a false treaty and they said, if you put your weapons down, then we will have mercy on you and let you go. And so they put their weapons down and then they take them captive. That's also the idea. So Paul's saying, don't let your guard down and don't listen to their false promises and their lies. Don't be taken kidnapped. Don't be taken captive by these Judaizers. Hold that line. Don't let your weapons get down. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, Paul says to the Galatians, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He says there again because once we were in bondage and then we were delivered out of that bondage into the freedom that Christ purchased for us on the cross. So it says, don't be taken again with the yoke of bondage. Basically, the kidnapper is the devil. Yes, men, which he sends, but ultimately the devil wants you back. You've been freed from his service and his slavery, and he doesn't like that. Probably one of the greatest pictures of this is found in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress with Christian and Apollyon. You can read that on your own, but it's one of the greatest pictures. Christian's been freed from the devil's service, and he's on his way to the kingdom of God. And Apollyon meets him, and basically like, hey, you're my, uh, you're my slave. He's like, no, I was your slave. And like, they get into this amazing conversation, and Apollyon wants him back. Devil wants you back. Even though you've been freed from his dominion, he still wants you back. Don't be taken kidnapped. And he comes at you in these subtle religious ways. Beware of the devil. This word philosophy in verse 8 has been a source of confusion for many commentators and Christians. Uh, Many commentators have thought that this word indicates Gnosticism was the problem at Colossians. I don't believe that. I'll explain why in a moment. And another source of confusion is, many Christians have taken this verse and run with it to say that Christians should be anti-intelligence, right? You ever met a Christian like that? They're not not Christians. But uh, they basically are saying, the, the less intelligent you are, the better. The more stupid you are, the more spiritual you are. That's the sense. And if you want to get... You know, into studying and learning and knowledge, you're just carnal and that's all the wisdom of the world. But that is not at all what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And whenever the, the, the wisdom of the world is, in, is, is said as a bad thing, it's in contrast with the wisdom of God, not just wisdom in general. There's no sense of being anti-intellectual or, or saying that knowledge is a bad thing in the Bible. Reason and revelation are not... Set against one another. Because some people, they say, it's pure reason and there's no revelation. That is bad. Certainly when someone says, there's no such thing as revelation, it's all of our reasoning, and that's the only way we know truth, that is wrong. But equally wrong is when it's pure revelation and no reason. And that's the uh, kind of anti-intellectual Christianity I'm talking about. They say, don't think about anything. There is no reason to the whole case. It's just you sort of getting feelings and revelations from God. And that's equally wrong. Revelation gives gives you something to reason about. And that's how they work together. Reason is subservient to God's revelation, but it's no less important. And here in verse 8 in the Greek, it's not just philosophy general, but it's the philosophy specific. In the Greek, it is with the article before it, so it's Paul is really saying, beware lest any man spoil you through the philosophy. Not just philosophy in general, but the philosophy of the Judaizers, their teaching, which is based upon traditions and rudiments. So this doesn't mean Gnosticism. This is the philosophy of the Judaizers. And that word philosophy was used by Jews in Paul's day to define their theology. Their is an important word here in verse 8. Notice with me this expression, the rudiments of the world. Or maybe it's translated the basic principles or the elements. Elements. This is a very important word in the in the New Testament. Stoikion is the word. Stoikion. So he's saying that the philosophy of the Judaizers is not based upon Christ. It's based upon Stoichion. Now, what is stoichion? Flip with me to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, briefly. And the word stoichion is used here, and it gives you an example of what it is. Hebrews 5, verse 12. When For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles or the stoichion of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. So the word stoichion here is used as the first principles of the oracles of God. It's the first principles. The ancient Greeks would use the word to describe the first principles of anything. Whether it be music, a science, an art, the first principles of their language, which would have been their ABCs. And actually, this ABCs came to be associated with the first principles of anything. So they would say the ABCs of mathematics, the ABCs of, you know, whatever it may be shipbuilding, architecture, engineering. The ABCs, we even use that expression in our own English language, don't we? The ABCs. And the sense here is the ABCs of religion. The ABCs of religion. What are the ABCs of religion? This is what H.M. Carson says here of what this could mean. He says, Paul could mean the rudimentary principles of instruction fitted for childhood but not for manhood. The thought would then be that to return to the speculation of the false teachers would be to cast away the mature teaching of the gospel for the poverty-stricken opinions of an immature religion which draws its being not from God, but from this world. The sense is always negative in Galatians and Colossians when Paul uses Stoikion. So he's saying it's the ABCs of the way that the world thinks about religion, essentially. Which is what? Well, if you do good, then... You get blessings, and if you do bad, then you are cursed. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, because that is how the law of God works, doesn't it? If you keep the law, you're blessed, and if you don't keep the law, you're cursed. That's stoichian. But there's more to God than Stoichian. There's more to religion than that. There's more to religion than just law. And Paul is saying, look, their reasoning is simply based upon Stoichian, ABCs of religion which is not what the gospel is all about. The gospel comes in and helps us where the Stoician cannot. See, if it's only just about doing good and do not doing bad, then we're all doomed. When the gospel comes in and it preaches the revelation of a mystery righteousness, blows our religious intuitions out of the water, and it says, look, you are unrighteous, but because Christ Jesus died on the cross... For you, took your place, paid the price, satisfied God's law by simply trusting in Him, you are declared righteous before God. It has nothing to do with you and what you have done. It has nothing to do with Stoichion whatsoever. So the issue here is this law and grace. So here's the obstacle men that will come. Sent by the devil, they seek to take you captive with their false ideas based upon Stoician and not based upon Christ. Is what you're believing based upon Stoician or is it based upon Christ? And if someone comes and knocks on your door and presents a religion to you, whatever that may, religion may be, ask yourself, is this what they're presenting based upon Christ or is it based upon Stoician? What is it? And lastly, in closing, the last point, how do we overcome this? Verse 9 and 10, Paul continues, verse 8, 9, and 10 need to be read together. And the word for in the King James, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, is better translated because or since. So he's saying, beware, don't be taken captive by these guys because... In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. And this is how we overcome the lies of the devil. We overcome it with the truth, the truth as it is in Jesus. You take the devil's lies and you replace it with the truth. This is what the devil says, but this is what God says. I'm going to whisk that away and set the truth in its place. I don't need to believe you because I have everything in Christ. In him is the emphasis in both of these verses. In him and in him alone dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him. If everything is in him and I am in him, then I have everything. And I don't need what you tell me that I need. I don't need more. Anyone who comes to you and says, you need more than Jesus. No, I don't need more than Jesus. I have everything in Jesus because everything is in Jesus. The false teachers preach deficiency. The gospel preaches sufficiency. The false teachers preach incompleteness, and the gospel preaches fullness, completion. The false teachers preach law, or stoichion. The gospel preaches grace. The false teachers preach traditions, and the gospel preaches Christ. And as the devil comes with his lies, and we resist him, he will flee. Right? You just... Respond to his lies with the truth. Wallace, you're there. You, you have to keep commandments in order to be saved. If you sin, then you're condemned. You can replace those lies with the truth as it is in Jesus. And when the devil flees, the Judaizers flee too. This is a true fact of history where a church stands strong in the gospel, false teachers try to get in. They can't penetrate. They leave and they'll go to another place where they can have an easier time. The Judaizers don't want to work too hard. They'll travel around looking for easier prey. So stand fast. So therefore, let's be thankful. Let's hold the line here in Cache Valley as we're surrounded by in a sense Judaizers. We lacked extremely and God provided gloriously for us and let there be no obstacle in the way of us giving praise to God. Amen? Let not there be an obstacle in the way of us giving thanks to God the Father. Our orders are this same today as they ever were abound in thanksgiving Our obstacle is men's ideas and traditions. And to overcome it, we overcome it with the truth. So let's do that, following out our marching orders. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel, the revelation of the mystery of righteousness by faith. And I pray that you would cause us all here to be rooted, stabilized, and built up in the gospel and established in the faith. I pray that we would all abound with thanksgiving. God, make us thankful people more than we are. Help us to realize all that we have in you, God, that we didn't work for it and that we do have it indeed. Make us excessively thankful, God, that we might be protected and grow. Help us to hold the line here, God. We give you thanks and praise, mighty God, for your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.